some of you know I haven't spoken for a couple of weeks in, in the preaching part here, but I've been so blessed because uh, both Chris Drennan and Ron Francis have stepped up to the plate to deliver some great teaching. If you haven't had a chance to hear either uh, Chris Drennan's, uh, I call it the Fruit Loop message, but it had more than just Fruit Loops involved in it. But how many of you were here for the Fruit Loop message? Okay, that was an awesome message. And if you haven't had heard a chance to hear Chris Drennan's Fruit Loop message, I encourage you to, to listen to that. It's not actually called that on the podcast channel. <laughs> But we're going through, we were going through Luke chapter 6, and uh, he had an incredible message. Uh, if God is your treasure, your love without measure, that is going to, I think, stick with me. Um, the other message after that, Ron Francis did an incredible job last week. While most of the staff were away, he brought a really incredible message. Again, in uh, Luke, Luke chapter 6. Did I say John 6? Anyway, Luke chapter 6. Both of them were in Luke chapter 6. And uh, just talking about the need for changed hearts and how Jesus can change our hearts. And so both of those podcasts you can hear uh, on our, at our website, okay? So check those out. But we're going to have uh, Chris come now, and he's going to, well, I'll let him introduce his topic. But let's just welcome him. A big welcome here. Awesome. Thank you, Steve, so much for that. I've got what resembles like only a quarter of a bottle of water, so this could prove to be the quickest message in history in about 20 minutes. Anyways, welcome. It looks like we got a full house today, so that's so exciting. I always get, ex- get more excited when there's more people to talk to. Um, So if you're new here, I just want to extend a very heartfelt welcome that you're here to worship the Lord with us. Um, As Steve had said, um, our previous series was on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and this week is kind of a bit of a one-off or kind of a bit of a transition message. And uh, to get some, lay some groundwork for where we're going to go next, uh, Steve next week is going to kick off a mini-series called the L-Series. And uh, you're going to want to be here for that. It's going to be really, really good. This week, though, uh, I was kind of asked to to talk on the issue of our identity in Christ. And so that is going to be our focal point uh, today. Now, my hope is that, or my thought on this message is that it kind of does a really good job of drawing together some of the ideas and stuff from our last series, as well as tying in with where we're going in our next series. So it very much is a great transitional message. Um, My hope this morning, though, is to present a helpful way of thinking about our identity. And I'm just going to move this a little more to the center so that I don't feel like these guys are getting all the good stuff. There we go. That should hopefully feel a little less awkward. So... Helpful ways of understanding our identity as Christ followers. That's what we're looking at this morning, okay? Now, the subject of identity can be a very charged subject because it's so personal, right? It's something that we take our identities very serious. It doesn't get more personal than who we think we are, right? Um, And it's especially hard not to take things personal when all of a sudden we feel like things we've been putting our identity in or things that we think are a part of our identity begin to be uh, challenged or nudged or prodded, that can become quite uncomfortable. So you, you may experience some of that this morning. On top of that, 
our understanding of our identity governs everything else that we do. Everything else, our whole approach to life is based out of who we think we are. Oh, I have a bit of... Should we abandon it? Okay. Sorry about that, you guys. This works really good, because I think at the rate we're going, we're probably not going to be able to have a closing worship song. So I always feel like my altar calls are a little bit abrupt, so this way I can just kind of end and just like, just drop the mic. (laughs) And so when I drop the mic, that's your cue to just go, okay? (laughs) Although I see Nick waving at me at the back, and he's like, if you drop that mic, you're paying for it. So. So here we go. So anyway, so our, our understanding of identity is based, is, is foundational in the way that we approach the, the rest of life. So it makes sense that if there's a, a healthy way to think about our identity, then we would do well to actually adopt that and live into that because what it's going to do is it's going to enable us to live fuller, freer, more meaningful lives that have greater fulfillment, greater sense of purpose than anything else. So that's possible. Why wouldn't we want to embrace that? Now, so some of you, some of you, I mean, this, Hillcrest is getting to know me pretty good. I'm a fairly transparent person. When it comes to things about identity, one of the things that has been very near and dear to my own heart in terms of my identity is, is growing up on a farm. Oh, I always get choked up. I start talking about my home life. and Anyways, it was a really good home life. That's why I get choked up. Anyways is growing up as a farm kid. Growing up on a farm is an amazing way to grow up. I, I loved it. And I got to tell you, my dad, my dad has a passion for farming. I remember, I remember working with him, and uh, we'd go out in the springtime after the crops had been sown, and they're already up, and dad's checking the crops for what he needs to spray. And he would just walk through the fields with his hands out, and he'd just let the wheat or the barley just rub on his fingers. And now my dad isn't very, he's not like me. <laughs> I'm like super emotional, cry at the drop of the hat. That's not my dad. But I remember this one time we're out walking and I remember catching my dad say the phrase, he's like, I just love this. I was like, what dad, what do you love? And he says, I just love seeing things grow and be a part of it. And to be honest, if I'm honest with you, I looked out and I just seen a whole pile of work. I just seen a crop of wheat. <laughs> I didn't really get what he was talking about, right? I missed it. I didn't see what he saw. And you know, as the years went on, I have an older brother who uh, got into carpentry, and it became very clear that he wasn't going to be taking over the family farm. And so then I feel like kind of my dad's eyes sort of all of a sudden looked at me, right? This is small town Saskatchewan, where family farms are very much uh, a part of what Saskatchewan is and what defines Saskatchewan. And I think it became fairly apparent that I definitely lacked the skill that my brother had in the aptitude in farming. I lacked that. Uh, but I think my dad was holding out for maybe hope that I would, I would take over the family farm. But as the years went on, there had to be those conversations where, um, sorry, Dad, I don't think I'm interested in farming. And those were difficult, difficult for him, difficult for me, because I'd always identified as a farm kid and loved that identity and thought, man, if I leave the farm, where is my identity then? But I didn't want to disappoint my dad. 
And so there was tension there. There was struggle there in wrestling with that part of, the, of my identity. That my identity was very much wrapped up in, a, in, in what I did or what I would do. I'm not in this alone, right? Like, the rest of you have kind of struggled with identity stuff, right? Am I, am I totally alone here? That's fine. But I'm sure, I'm sure all of us, to some degree, wrestle with this issue of identity. It's all surrounding that question, who am I? And I, when I think of that phrase, who am I, my mind goes back to a Jackie Chan movie from 1998. Anybody else remember that movie, Who Am I? If I don't see a hand, I'm dropping this story. Oh, I see one hand, perfect. So anyways, Jackie Chan is a, is a Chinese actor from Hong Kong, okay? And he speaks, he, he, show, he shows up in whole, all kinds of like kung, kung fu movies and stuff like that, right? Anyway, so he's like this master kung fu spy guy in this movie, but somehow he ends up with amnesia. And so the whole movie, he's running around asking the question, Who am I? Who am I? Right? And my brother and I would get a kick out of this. I know my, my Chinese accent is, I haven't spent a lot of time with Chinese people. I need to so I can polish that accent. Anyways, so my brother and I got a kick out of this because the whole time he'd say it and we'd be like, you're Jackie Chan, you're Jackie Chan. We love Jackie Chan. So who am I? We're all asking that question. And while we're asking that question, we actually get a lot of feedback. You know? We live in a world and a culture that is obsessed with identity. And you know what? They're ready to fill that void. If, you're, if you've got questions, they've got answers. We're constantly bombarded with ideas and advertisements about how we should look, what we should wear, what we should drive, how much we should make, how we should live, where we should live, what kind of house we should live in, and how we should act, so on and so on. All geared to helping us fill ourselves with an understanding of, of identity. And meaning. And we're made to believe that this stuff defines us. We're made to believe that the more stuff that we have, the more of a person we are. Think Fruit Loops. Much time and energy is spent in our lives trying to figure out who we are. So, with everyone asking this question of who am I, my mind goes to this one thing. There's only one way that this question for all of us is really answered. And that's through imitation. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but it is. It's true. It's imitation is how we answer that. One's sense of identity is fundamentally based on imitation. Identity equals imitation. If it looks like a duck, and it acts like a duck, and it sounds like a duck, good chance it's a duck, right? But what one chooses to imitate results in a very different outcome in formation. Here's what I'm getting at. There should be some slides popped up here. There's really two ways to go about things. There's kind of the world's approach to identity, and then there's God's approach. So the worldly approach to identity looks something like this. It says, it looks inside. It says that identity is found inside you, that your understanding of who you are requires you to look inside, get in touch with yourself, understand yourself, and then be who you are. That you define. You define what your identity is all about. It's all about you. You are the center of your world, and you can create your own identity. 
And we see this all around us, don't us? Don't we? I mean, I think of, I think of identity by the world standards, and I think identity crisis. And we've all witnessed that, right? The, the Hollywood movies, or maybe we know some, some people where all of a sudden they hit that midlife tipping point, right? And then all of a sudden they're, they're in crisis. They, they, they're realizing they're not who they, they've always wanted to be. So, you know, they're out spending money on a fancy sports car. Or, you know, by Hollywood standards, they're exchanging their 40 in for 220s, right? Um, this idea of, and I can't be too hard on these guys, right? Because I... I I probably have a midlife crisis coming up probably in the next five years. So I can't, I can't be too hard on these guys. But that's what happens is that we base our identity on all these things that we think speak about who we are. And then we have a crisis and we change our minds. Isn't it? The world's way is so fickle in that it can change because you change or your thoughts about your change or you get new ideas and so you run with it. It's totally subjective and not the same for everybody. It also, the world's way also looks at, you know, it's all based around what makes me happy? What makes me feel fulfilled? And it doesn't matter if that ends up conflicting with somebody else's happiness, because it's all about me, and that's what I'm pursuing. Now let's flip things a little bit, and let's look at God's approach to identity. God's approach to identity is vastly different, where it doesn't begin with a look inside, but rather it begins a look outward to something else. An identity that's derived from somebody else, it looks towards God. Identity is set by God. The Bible teaches us right from genera- gen- generation, right through the generations, from Genesis, how we're created, God creates humankind in his own image and in his own likeness. And he gives them the task, this noble charge of representing him to the rest of the world in their walk of life, and in all that they do. God becomes the context for our identity. He becomes the center. And we end up realizing that, you know what, it's a much bigger picture than just me. We realize that the world doesn't revolve around me, but the world revolves around God and his will, and we actually get invited into this as participants There's a much bigger picture at play when it comes to identity than just what we would find on the inside of ourselves. There's greater purpose, greater meaning for your life when you allow your identity to be what God has created it to be. There's more at stake than just your personal happiness and fulfillment. So both of these identities are based on imitation. The world's way, in the world's way, one simply Uh, imitates the general initiatives and values that the world holds and denies any existence of God. Doing identity God's way is entirely fixed on imitating him and cultivating an awareness of his ever-present, abiding presence with us. Either way, either way that we understand our identity our identity is learned and experienced through imitation. And I don't, I don't know about you, but this seems to be that the way that it works with life too, doesn't it? Like, I mean, we have some newborns born in Hillcrest, and you see anybody get their hands on a, on a newborn, and what's the first thing that they do? They start making, like, 
googly noises and a googly face and sticking out their tongue, right? And then, and you're not really sure who's mimicking who, right? Because then the baby's sticking out his tongue too, or are they mimicking what the baby's doing, you know? But that babies are kind of hardwired for imitation. You know, and that, that doesn't just leave at the baby stage. I've got, I've got small kids. I've got a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. It runs right through them. Uh, Lucy Ray's the oldest. She loves to run around the house and do her thing. And you know who's exactly right behind her? Maya. Shadowing absolutely everything she does, repeating everything she says. I have a nickname for them. I call Lucy Ray Pete, and I call Maya Repeat. Right? <laughs> Because we always hear things twice in our house. Lucy will say it first, and then Maya will do it. They mimic, and they copy each other. This is why we care about who our kids hang out with. Right? Because they pick up on those things. I mean, how many times, I mean, parents with small children, how many times have your kids shown up back at home, and all of a sudden either said something or did something that made you go, hmm, I know exactly where they got that from, right? And it wasn't here. You know whose friends that they've been hanging out with or what family they've been hanging out with, right? We all do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm very guilty of this. I have this. I have this thing that I do with my kids where I'll be goofing off with them and I always say, like, what the, but I don't finish my sentence. So, but it's more like, what the, you know? So we'll be playing and a tower will fall down. I'll be like, what the? Kind of like that. And I think like nothing of it until I must have finished the sentence once or twice because I all of a sudden hear Lucy Ray playing and out of the room I hear, what the heck? And I'm like, oh, that does not sound very good. You know, Lucy, heck is a bad word. You can't say that. You can't use that. She's like, well, you use it, daddy. And I hang my head in shame. Bad parent, bad parent. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. You're laughing because you're guilty of the same thing. I'm sure of it. And we've, you know, we've all had that moment too growing up where we've been, there's been some tension between us and our parents and we're like, you know what? I never, I know how I'm going to end up when I leave home. I'm not going to be like my parents at all. I don't want to be anything like them. And then the years pass, life carries on, and then we all have that moment again where we do something and we're like, oh, I'm exactly like my mom or dad, Right? My mom, one of the things my mom, she's, she's passed on now, but one of the things she, she would do that would just really always bug me is that she, she like micromanaged like, and took it to a whole new level. Like if you were in the kitchen with my mom, she was letting you know where to stand, what you were to be doing, how you were to be doing it. And it doesn't matter if she's already told you this umpteen times before she's given you directions again. And then I find that I'm chasing my wife around the kitchen Telling her how, you know, you could do it like this, or you should do that. You know, honey, I always just close the cupboards when I'm, you know, doing stuff. And, you know, if I'm done with this, if I'm done with this pot, I just always put it into the sink. You know, if you're finished with the milk, don't leave it on the counter. Take and put it in the fridge, right? And all of a sudden I realize, I'm exactly like my mom. Identity via imitation. You know, it's the same way that, um, you know, older couples, like as they age and as they're, you know, having spent 40 years together, that they begin to kind of look similar, you know? And then they, they start wearing like the same winter jackets or the same track suits, right? And I don't, is that just Grenfell or does that happen here in Moose too? 
Imitation happens because of influence. Here's the thing. We become like the people that we hang around. Isn't that true? It's the whole reason why, you know, we act just a little bit different when we're hanging out with our buddies or our friends from work, right? And then we look and we act just a little bit different when we're hanging out with our friends from church, right? We're all, we're all guilty of that, of, of imitating the attitudes of those that are around us. So here we are. We come to the crux of it, the real tension of the matter, where these two worlds collide. Where we find ourselves living in the world, and yet we find a God who calls us out of the world to imitate him. And this conflict takes place inside of us, right? The tension is experienced on the inside. But being called out of this world, being called to imitate God in this world is much easier said than done. Wouldn't you agree? But aren't you glad that God gives us some insight into this? Aren't you glad that God gives us some help with this? That we're not just left to figure it out by a long, blank gaze within ourselves. But rather we're to look to him and what he says about it. And now this morning, rather than looking at um, what to imitate about God, I really want to explore for the rest of our time this morning how to imitate God. So, if identity is by imitation and imitation is by influence, then how do we imitate God? Now, this this can be somewhat problematic for us, right? Because we understand that God is spirit, right? And he's eternal, And we recognize that we are flesh and blood and that even this is temporary until it gets upgraded, right? And so how do we we imitate God when there's such a vast difference between us? Well, wouldn't you believe it that God actually decided to come to earth and to live as a man? Jesus Christ. That he decided it it wasn't good enough to just tell people to be like me and be removed from their world, but rather I'm going to come down and I'm going to show them how it's done. And so God becomes man, the person of Jesus Christ, and he lives and dwells among us. Wow! God has truly thought of everything. Jesus demonstrates for us and purchased for us via his sacrifice on the cross the kind of relationship we were always intended to have with our Heavenly Father. So I'd like to look at these four ways first that Jesus accomplished this. And they're simply look, listen, learn, and love. So if you're curious about how to imitate God, you'll take note of these. So firstly, we branch off into look. And for that, I would like you to look at your Bibles. And uh, it's a little more tricky now with uh, one hand down. Uh, We're going to be taking uh, a stroll to John 15. So the Gospel of John, and that's chapter 15. And now I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a running commentary on the story, and then we'll hop in somewhere towards the end. Whoa, am I in the right spot? 
Sorry about that. Not, oh, I apologize. John 5. That's embarrassing. Do I have it right up there? I'm not sure. Okay, John 5. Now, when you're, that moment when your blood goes cold, when you're like looking at a strange passage of scripture and you're like, this isn't what I thought it said. It says nothing what I thought it said. So, here we go. Jesus was great at seeing people. Here's how the story goes. He rolls into town, and there's this crazy pool that a lot of sick and lame people would like to, get, to gather around, okay? Because they believe that every once in a while, an angel came down, stirred the water, and the belief was that whoever made it into this water first, after the stirring, would be healed of all their infirmaries, okay? So it's just, you know, superstitious, superstitious, I know. But people were all gathered around this. And you know what? All of a sudden, our story finds us on a Sabbath day, Jesus is down there walking amongst these people, okay? As he's walking amongst them, he, he learns or he comes to understand, know that there's a guy there who's been an invalid for 38 years. And God, Jesus comes up to him and simply asks him, do you want to get well? And it's kind of comical because the guy begins to explain how making excuses to say, wow, when the water stirred, you know, there's people that butt in front of me and get down to the water and I can't get down there first, so I have no chance of getting healed. And Jesus kind of, kind of laughs at this because he's thinking that it's the water that makes him whole. And yet Jesus knows that he's got something, he's the one that makes him whole. And so Jesus heals this guy on a Sabbath. This guy's ecstatic, not so much the religious rulers, okay? Because all of a sudden here it is that they have Jesus on an infraction. He broke the Sabbath law, which says there's no working. And so they call Jesus out on this. And Jesus tells them a line about, you know what? Um, I'm working because I see my father working. And if he's working, I'm going to be working. And then he goes on, and this is Jesus' reply, verses 19 onward. Jesus says, he gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only... Do he, he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does all also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater work than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom uh, he is pleased to give it. And so we see that there's this interesting component about Jesus that somehow he is able to see God at work and he just mimics what God is already doing. I don't know about you, but that, that fascinates me. That Jesus must have saw with eyes that were different than his earthly eyes. Jesus was in the world and he was aware of those who were around him. And he looked for what God was up to in the midst of it all. Jesus could actually see God at work in a tangible way. It wasn't just theory to Jesus. Elsewhere, there's a teaching where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And the line goes, um, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teaching this dynamic that there's a way that God does stuff that needs to be brought down and executed out here on earth. Fascinating. I'm, I'm blown away by that. Jesus looked at the world 
with different eyes. Eyes that saw, see people. He saw that man and he knew that God wanted to heal him. Number two we're looking at is Jesus listens. Jesus, Jesus listens to God. He spends time with him. He hears from God. This is true all throughout the Gospels. You encounter where Jesus is off, you know, wandering the hills alone, spending time with his Lord. Listening, spending time in prayer. A little bit later on in our passage, in verse 24, here's what Jesus says. He says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life. Jesus points out here that there is a great deal of listening to be done on behalf of those who would follow him. A little bit later in verse 30, he says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but to please him who sent me. We get some insight into, into what Jesus' priorities were and what he was all about. There's a lot of time spent listening to his father, and this was a key part of his prayer life. Not just talking, but really listening. And you think it's almost by design, right? We're created with two ears and one mouth, so we do twice as much listening as we do talking. Moving on, next we see Jesus learning. Now, in, in this current story, we, we, it has the phrase that Jesus learned that this man had been an invalid for 30, 38 years. Interesting. Jesus had to learn that. He had to encounter that information. But there's another story that I feel like demonstrates Jesus' learning really well. And that's found in Luke chapter 2 towards the end. You can turn there if you want. If not, it'll be up on the screen here. Um, but what happens is, is that now Jesus, this is much earlier, and Jesus is only 12 years old. And his family heads off to Jerusalem uh, for a feast. And they do their thing, and they're headed back. Except uh, Mary and Joseph get about a day and a half out of town and realize that Jesus isn't with them. So they frantically go back to Jerusalem and search everywhere for Jesus. Well, they end up finding 12-year-old Jesus hanging out in the temple, talking with the scholars and the religious rulers there. And he's baffling them by their wisdom. And Mary comes to, to Jesus and she says, Jesus, how could you do this to us? You know, me and your father, we've been anxiously searching everywhere for you. How could you do this to us? And here's Jesus' reply. He says simply, why were you searching for me? In verse 49, he asks, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Or another way of rendering that is that I had to be about my father's business. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. And here's the key. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, if Jesus, 
In our earlier story, we have Jesus saying, you know, God is working, so I'm working. I'm going to be about that. And then here we have that he even had that understanding as a 12-year-old. I don't know, like that's... Like, I mean, my thought of teenagers and what I experienced is my mom pointing her finger at me saying, who do you think you are? You know? And me, you know, pushing back a little bit and being a bit rebellious. Here we have the Son of God in the flesh, 12 years old, and he knows what his father is all about, that he's God's son, and that God has a, has a plan and a work for him to do. Keep in mind the Jewish culture now, at 13, you're a man. There's a bar mitzvah, and you're, you're it, right? And so I could see Jesus is naturally getting ready kind of for that day. And yet rather than pushing back and putting his mom and dad in place and carrying on with the work that God had given to him, we see Jesus heading back off with his family for years. That he submits to him. He's willing to learn. Jesus submits himself to his parents and to the process. And as a result, he grows in stature and favor with God with man. And I imagine, can you imagine being God, being perfect, but then living with people who aren't? Maybe some of you can relate. I imagine that the process <laughs> was messy and seemingly menial, while at the same time, it's meaningful and it's mysterious. Finally, we head off into love. Man, Jesus is amazing at letting us know what God is like. At giving us an accurate representation of who God is. And revealing to us what God is really after. That God is really concerned about love. The way that we love him and he with us and the way that we love each other. One story that this depicts this super well is going to be the, the, the last passage that we're going to close on. And it's a, the, the parable about the prodigal son. So if you'd like to get primed up and turn there, you can find that in Luke 15, okay? So, so I'll kind of give us a, a Coles Notes version of this. Because, I mean, this is, this is a popular parable, right? Uh, the prodigal son or the lost son. It's, it's a familiar story for some. But if, if you're new here and you're not sh really up-to-date on the details with the story. Here it is. So, Jesus is telling this story about a father who has two sons. And the younger of the sons comes to the father and says, hey, dad, I'd like my inheritance now. Okay? And as a Jewish family, him being the younger son meant that he, he only got one-third of the estate. Okay? The weird thing is, is look at this father. This father gives him his inheritance. One-third. Okay? It's not long after that the son gets his inheritance that he's like, I'm out of here. I've got what I wanted. I've got my stuff. My Fruit Loop jar is full. I'm out of here, right? So he heads out, and you know what? He heads to a country, and he ends up, like, spending all of his inheritance on, on wild living. And eventually a famine sets in, and he finds himself completely, totally, and utterly destitute with nothing. But he's still got his pride, and so he says, you know what, I can work for a living, I can, I can make this happen. So he, he hires himself out to a man who puts him in charge of, eat, of feeding pigs, okay? 
which would have been horrible as a Jewish person, right? You didn't come close to pigs. You didn't touch pigs. Pigs were an unclean animal, and yet here's a spot where he finds himself feeding these pigs. And the Bible makes it clear that he, there was such a longing in his soul for, for hunger, and I would say meaning, that he, he longed to fill himself like the pigs were filling themselves on their food. Well, thank the Lord, as the story goes, you know, he comes to his senses and he realizes, oh my goodness, like my dad has hired hands who eat way better than this. They're not his sons, they're just his hired hands and they have dignity about them and are, and are well fed under my dad's house. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my dad, I'm going to apologize and, and ask him to just make me a servant. So that's what he heads to do. And as the story goes, we learn that as the the sun sets out, we see this picture of not a father who's waiting for his son to approach him and apologize. No, the story that Jesus tells is about a father who's looking. After years and years of not knowing where his son was or what he was up to, we get the impression that he was looking for his son. Because all of a sudden it says when the son was still a long way off, the father sees him and books it for him, lifts up his cloak, and heads out to see his son. And when he comes close to the son, the son already has his, his apology already polished, and he starts saying it, and yet the father can't even hear the apology. He simply grabs his son, embraces him with a hug, throws his robe on him, tells the servants to get sandals and a ring, and reinstates him into the family. This is a radical father. And a radical kind of love. Doesn't ask him to give an account of where the inheritance is gone. Is just so thankful to have his son back with him. Often we we like to just hear that part of the parable. And we're good, right? Makes us feel good. That's God's kind of love. It's radical. But Jesus tells this story as a double-edged sword because there's another son in the picture. This son, this older brother, he is not impressed, right? As the story goes, he comes home from a long day slaving in the fields. And he hears from a servant, he's like, he hears music, and he's like, what's going on? And the servant is like, the brother of yours has come home, and your dad's killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating. And here's how the older brother responds. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. What kind of a dad is this? You know, there's a party going on. He's excited to have his son there. And yet he realizes the older one's putting up a bit of a, of a hissy fit, being a bit difficult. But this father looks past that and goes, doesn't say just deal with it. This father says, runs out to him and pleads with him. You get the idea that the the father lives by a different set of values than the sons. The father can't even get a word out. Because the son, he answers his father and says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Notice his choice of words. Slaving for you. Not working alongside you. Not glad to be part of the family farm, dad. But slaving for you. And he says this, and I've never disobeyed 
your orders. I, I can't say that. Here's his next words. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So there's a celebration going on in next door with the younger son's return. Everybody's excited about that. The father's heart's overjoyed. The older son comes back and he's upset. But why is he upset? Not because he hasn't been invited into that celebration. He's upset because he would rather celebrate with his friends than with his family. Ouch. Can you imagine being the father? Not only hearing the cutting words slaving for you, but that I just want a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He goes on to say, but when this son of yours, notice, it's not this brother of mine. He's detached all investment, all relationship with this younger brother. He says, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home. You kill the fattened calf for him. And then we have the father's response. Verse 31. Father says, My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Seems to me that the father is willing to share everything he has freely with his sons. It's there for their taking. But it's not about the stuff. It's not about the work that needs to get done in and of itself, but it's about who you do it with and who you do it for. The tragedy of this parable is that both sons miss the heart of the father. And his heart is that of love. Neither were really concerned about the father's heart or his desires. Yet so clearly from this parable, it's to have a loving relationship with his kids. You know, the most amazing thing about Jesus... There's lots of amazing things. But that he was the kind of guy who was a man of his word. And so not only did he tell us a lot of great things about who God was and how we could relate to God and how we're invited into relationship with him, but Jesus actually lived out what he proclaimed. And so if we fast forward, we find Christ nearing the end of his life where he's in a garden and he understands what God is calling him to do. He understands that God is saying, Jesus, you have to become the sacrificial lamb for all the sins and all the mistakes of the entire world. This has to happen. And as you can imagine, the pressure, the stress, the anxiety as the sin of the world is laid on Christ. He's to the point of anguish, and yet his heart's cry is, Lord, not my will be done, but yours and he goes to the cross for your sake and for mine and bears our sin. And here's where the turn happens. Through his sacrifice, Christ purchased for us the right to share with him in his sonship with the Father. 
that we would have access to God and be able to relate with God just as Jesus did and continues to do. You know, it's, it's not enough for us to simply see these things in Scripture, in the life of Jesus, but we too must apply them to our own lives and put them into practice. So very briefly, just before I, I close off our service, let's, let's look at these things. This idea of looking. Looking to God. When we look to God, we see that God is actually looking to other people and concerned with other people. It should challenge us to look around and to be aware of who we're living alongside and who we're living with. To pay attention to what they're going through. Do you know that Jesus actually wants to help us to see the world that he, the way that he does? He actually wants to give us fresh eyes. He invites us to look through his eyes at this world and see what he sees. Amazing. And it's not a one-time thing, but a daily invitation that our identities are hidden in Christ so that we would see this world and relate with it the same way that he does. Jesus, Jesus wasn't too busy or too preoccupied with all the work that he had to do. That he didn't miss those people who needed a healing touch, who needed a kind word. And I would ask you, who is it in your life that God wants you to see with a fresh pair of eyes? Listening. Listening to God. This is the focus of our Hearing God seminar and the stuff that we've been, we've been immersed in for, the num- for a number of weeks now. And as we listen to God, we have an opportunity to hear him speak to us and to give us words of what to say to these other people that we've seen, these other needs that have arise. God wants to speak to us about that just as he spoke to Christ And Christ acted on those. And you know what? That might simply be listening to others. Hearing them out. Hearing their story. Entering into their pain with them. Letting them get it off their chest. Hearing God and and listening prayer are a big part of this. And we're invited to practice this every day so that we can get better at it. The last one, or second last one, learning. Now, learning is where it becomes the real thing. This means that we desire to to imitate who God is. We're ready to submit to the process. Imitation becomes our top priority. And getting this is key, because this is how we love God. And show him that he's a priority to us. See, up until now, you could still walk away, right? You can see like Jesus does, and you can hear God like Jesus does, and you can still walk away. But learning takes it to a whole new level. This means that you're willing to actually step out and risk failing, or risk being wrong, or risk being put in an awkward position. Up until now, anyone can see and hear and still walk away, choose to ignore or get busy and forget. However, 
as we embrace him and his way, we become more like him. We imitate him, and that means we are immersed in the lives of others. And imitating God's means being attracted to the hurts and the brokenness that is a part of our people's world, all with the aim of bringing them healing, bringing them hope, because God has put that in us to offer to them by his own grace. Another element of this learning is that we got to be gracious with ourselves. We have to understand that it's a process. We're not going to get it right right away. There's going to be times where we'll fail. And we need to just give ourselves, cut ourselves some slack. You know, I think of a, I think of a child learning to walk. And that the first time they, you know, try to take a step and they wobble and they fall down, you don't pick them up and spank them because they got it wrong, right? It's a process. They're learning, you know? And soon as they keep practicing and keep learning, they get better and better until they're walking and running and drawing on your walls and terrorizing your house. <laughs> loving, finally, means that we spend time in God's loving presence. And when we do that, we will naturally begin to imitate and love like he does. We won't be able to help it, you guys. That we'll be so filled to overflowing with God's love and God's perspective that it will flow out from our lives into the lives of other people. This is the kind of love that heads out into the world and makes a difference. Um, I've talked a lot about our kids imitating us or imitating me even in, in kind of a negative sense. But, you know, there, my experience has been that there are ways that my kids inspired me to, me to love. And uh, one of these stories comes from this weekend. I'm always amazed at God's graciousness, how the things that happen in my life line up right with where I'm at in preparing a message. Anyways, as it tends to happen... I tend to get sometimes a little bit frazzled. And when I sit down and try to put thoughts on paper, it doesn't flow very well. And sometimes I'm distracted because upstairs I can hear my girls laughing or fighting. And uh, I don't always process that very well. I headed, I headed upstairs in a bit of a huff, and I was kind of frustrated, and I was kind of venting a little bit. And as I was on, on my way upstairs to my room, I heard Lucy Ray ask Jenna, what was wrong with daddy? And Jenna just simply said, oh, dad, daddy's just having a hard time focusing. And Lucy Ray instantly perked up and she said, I know what will help. And so she runs to her craft counter and she grabs out her craft pail and she comes upstairs and she comes into the room and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm doing what I normally do when I kind of, when I kind of lose my way and not too sure where I should go next. I grab the Bible and I pick up on the last verse that I felt God speaking to me. And I just start there again and say, Lord, I just, I need to hear you. I need to hear you again. So I'm there in the midst of that in my room and Lucy Ray comes in and she says, she comes to bed and she sets up her craft pail and she starts opening it. And uh, I'm kind of like, hi, like, what are you doing? And she looks at me, and she looks away, and she has kind of this embarrassed look. And I think, oh, I've done it. She's going to leave now. But she doesn't. She stays there. And she opens her pail, and she pulls out a little craft that she's doing. And she said, 
Daddy, I'm sorry you're having time focusing. She's like, but here, have this heart. I had to concentrate really hard to do it. And it's a craft that you put beads together and make a pattern and then you iron it together. And she gives it to me. She climbs up on the bed and she gives me a hug and then she leaves. And in that moment, I realized, man, that is probably something that she, you know, she's not getting that from me. That's coming from somewhere else. And I just see God in that moment, Lucy Ray being able to, way that she's wired, how God is loving through her and ministering to me. Powerful, powerful stuff. I'm going to close just with this last story. You know, I still get back to the farm from time to time. I uh, try to squeeze some time away from Hillcrest to go help with seeding or to help with harvest. And you know what? When I'm here, I can't imagine myself ever being a farmer. Just not going to work. But when I get home, and I get into my dad's kind of rhythm of farming, and I see how much joy farming brings him, and how happy he is, it's contagious. I all of a sudden start thinking, man, this is pretty fun. Like, this is all right. I don't mind this at all. But I realize, you know what? I enjoy it because he enjoys it. And how much he loves it rubs off on me. I like it because he likes it. And I enjoy it because it brings him so much joy. It's amazing how being around him while he farms makes me love farming. But you know what? That also helps me understand about something about my identity in Christ too. That when I find myself in the presence of Christ... I realize what really matters. That the message of the gospel and bringing hope to people who have none through the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth giving your whole life to. Love is contagious. And so, sorry to end on such a heavy note, but I'll close our service. I'm going to close us off in prayer. At that time, our sound guys, they'll put some music on. So if you want to linger for a little while, please feel free to do that. If you want to come up to the front and receive prayer, if there's something going on, there'll be some prayer people up here. Myself will stick around. Steve will be around. We'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you, okay? If not, when I'm done praying, you can take that as a cue that you're dismissed, okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. God, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. I thank you for Jesus Christ who makes a relationship with you possible. And not a subservient relationship, but a relationship of richness, a relationship of love that has meaning and purpose. God, I pray for my friends today. I pray that as they go this week, about their lives and about their jobs that you've called them to, that you're present with them in. Lord, would you open their eyes and my eyes, Lord, to see you at work in our workplaces, to see you at work 
in our families, to see you at work in our neighborhoods. I pray also, Lord, for them that they would have time where they can get away and they can simply listen. Listen for you to speak. Listen for you to whisper your advice and your counsel. I thank you, Lord, that you've given your very spirit to us, that it resides in us. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from you, that we would imitate you, that we would love like you. Thank you for all that you're doing. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be dismissed.